You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 459 of this podcast. Today is Sunday, August 28th, 2022. And today we're going to talk about California banning gas vehicles by 2035. Plus also the question, is it gatekeeping to recommend books. I think this is going to be an interesting episode, to say the least. But before we get into it, I'll just say a quick word on a personal note. I, this week, bought a rowing machine. It is sitting here right behind me in my office. I'm looking at it right now. I got about a five-minute workout on it yesterday. And the day before, also, about a five-minute workout. And I'm going to build up. I'm, I'm going to build up five minutes here, six minutes there, 10 minutes now, 15 minutes. I'm going to build up until I can do a 20-minute workout on the rowing machine and not be uh, just totally sore and uh, worthless the next day. Five minutes felt like that was pretty good. And honestly, with my work, I need to do something like this, something that is close at hand. I can get up when I've been sitting for too much. I have a standing desk. I'm standing at it right now, actually, as I record this podcast. And that's great. That's really, really great. But I think the next step is not just to have a standing desk where I'm not just sitting, but have something that's going to be exercising my body to where I am staying healthy. And I've got boys that need the exercise. My wife wants to use the rowing machine as well. Our daughter wants to use the rowing machine as well. We're going to go slow, start out with shorter amounts of time, going slow, low resistance, and make sure that our form is correct so we're not injuring ourselves. But I'm really excited about it. We're all really excited about it. Because if this is going to work out, what was it, 85% of the muscles and muscle groups in the body, well then, that'll be all right. That plus some calisthenics, plus warm-ups, plus kettlebells, and I think we'll be getting a good uh, functional fitness workout in addition to the normal course of life. You know, life, for us, with a big family this size, has exercise baked in, but depending on what you've got going on, you might be doing a lot of one particular kind of exercise and not really working out your whole body. And so this will be, I think, a way to keep from having atrophy in certain muscle groups that just don't get worked out all that often. And uh, I'm very excited about it. Now, on a less exciting note, 
I've got some charming quotes to share with you from this week from Democrats here in the U.S., including one current governor, one candidate for governor, and even the president of the United States with regards to Republicans. I think these are worth a gander, worth a glance, especially as we're getting closer and closer to the midterm elections in the U.S. It's very uh, interesting, <clears throat> uh, we'll put it that way, to hear how some of the most prominent Democrats are messaging what it is that they're saying about their opponents. Uh, first of all, we've got New York Governor Kathy Hochul to her Republican opponents in the state of New York. And I quote, And we are here to say that the era of Trump and Zeldin and Molinaro just jump on a bus and head down to Florida where you belong. Okay, get out of town because you do not represent our values. You are not New Yorkers. Now, to be clear, to be very, very clear, she was speaking specifically, obviously, of Trump and Lee Zeldin and a certain Molinaro who was running for office. I think it, I think he lost his uh, race or his primary or what have you. Uh, but nevertheless, when pressed, Governor Hochul tried to qualify her remarks. And I think <clears throat> uh, even though she said what I just said, uh, there's more that can be said about it and more that can be gleaned from it. Uh, she continues on. I referred to three individuals, Donald Trump, County Executive Molinaro, and Congressman Lee Zeldin. I spoke about three people whose views we believe are extreme. They supported the overturning of a presidential election, end quote. But yes, <laughs> uh, you're not just talking about these three people. If you think their views are extreme, you're, by extension, referring to everybody who shares their views. And that would presumably include a lot of the people who voted for them. You want people who voted for Donald Trump and Molinaro and Zeldin to move down to Florida. Okay, well, maybe that's uh, <clears throat> maybe that's uh, what they're doing anyways and what they want to do anyways, because you didn't have to say the quiet part out loud, but uh, now you're trying to make it sound like you can't fire me. I quit to folks who really don't like your politics. They don't like the way that you're trying to run their lives, trying to control them, trying to make all their decisions for them. Uh, the way that you Democrats in the state of California and New York have allowed crime to spiral out of control, but at the same time have criminalized decent behavior, including law-abiding citizens trying to own firearms so that they can protect themselves, defend themselves against predators, against criminals, against bad men in particular. Uh, you know, uh, you, you can't fire me. I quit maybe is a bluff. I'll just say that. Another interesting personality among the Democrats candidate for Florida governor, Democrat Charlie Crist said this, those who support the governor, that is Ron DeSantis, current governor should stay with him and vote for him. And I don't want your vote. 
If you have that hate in your heart, keep it there. Now, this is uh, an odd thing to say at first blush, because how does voting for Ron DeSantis equate to having that hate in your heart? Those who support the governor have hate in their heart, according to Charlie Crist. Well, that's not, you're, you're really not selling it. I'm sorry. Uh <laughs> What it really about what what it really boils down to, I think, is probably if if we were to peel back the layers on the onion here, it's probably a jab at Ron DeSantis going after Disney and the so-called "Don't Say Gay" bill, which uh, honestly I don't think went far enough, and I think a lot of Republicans, a lot of conservatives, would say it was too conservative in setting limitations on how young little boys and girls can be before public schools are actively trying to recruit them for the transgender moment we're in right now. How actively can these kids be uh, talked into changing their preferred pronouns or getting gender reassignment surgery at eight years old, right? That really was the question inherent to the legislation. Uh, (laughs) According to Charlie Crist and the Democrats, that means uh, you have hate in your heart when you don't want a little eight-year-old boy or a little eight-year-old girl being talked into mutilation of their bodies to be the other. You know, this little boy is going to have to have uh, basically the same surgery that has been done for thousands of years to make eunuchs if he wants to be a little girl. Uh, this little girl over here is going to have to have uh, the same surgery that's done when a woman has uh, breast cancer. She's going to have to have a double mastectomy if she wants to not look like and and not be uh, quite so obviously a girl when the public schools in Florida are trying to cajole and nudge her into gender reassignment or being her true self. But Charlie Crist says, if you support the governor who was trying to set some limits and boundaries on those efforts, not even to ban them entirely from K through 12, but set some lower limits on how old a young person in the public schools in Florida has to be before public school teachers and administrators can start campaigning for them to uh, mutilate their bodies. If if you support Ron DeSantis and the Republicans in Florida, well, then you have hate in your heart. Okay, if you say so, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I you know you know right. Yeah, I I do hate. <laughs> they do hate uh, little boys and little girls getting unnecessary elective surgeries and uh, hormone therapy and uh, brainwashing. Yeah, we we do hate that. You're right, and we should hate that. If you hate that, then don't vote for Charlie Crist, apparently. He continues, I want the vote of the people of Florida who care about our state. Good Democrats, good independents, good Republicans. Unify with this ticket. Unify with Val Demings and Charlie Crist. Unify with us. Those who are haters, you're going to go off in your own world and you better get right. That's interesting. Here's a couple of things we've been talking about here recently on this podcast, one of them being the usage 
ironically, of the term good. You know, how do you know what good is, Charlie Crist? What is good? Right? You say good Democrats, good independents, good Republicans. What is your definition of good based on? And what does it require of the people you would say are good that they do and don't do, that they say and don't say, that they think and don't think, that they feel and don't feel, that they believe and don't believe? What is your definition of good here? And also, for that matter, we see this word unity or we see a call to unify with Charlie Crist and Val Demings. Unify with us. Those who are haters, you're going to go off in your own world and you better get right. So I'll play just a very, very short clip from The Office at this point. Uh, the, I, I'm totally reminded uh, of this here. Take a listen. I think this is uh, maybe Charlie Crist in another life. This is an environment of welcoming, and you should just get the hell out of here. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We're, we're all about inclusivity here. Now, go off in your own little world and die. All right. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> oh, shoot. Okay. Last but not least, President Biden was speaking to Democrat donors in a Washington suburb on Monday. And he had a couple of interesting gems, reliably so. Uh, and I quote, what we're seeing now is either the beginning or the death knell of extreme MAGA philosophy. MAGA being make America great again. It's not just Trump. It's the entire philosophy that underpins the, <clears throat> I'm going to say something. It's like semi-fascism. He continues, the MAGA Republicans don't just threaten our personal rights and economic security. He also says they're a threat to our very democracy. They refuse to accept the will of the people. They embrace political violence. They don't believe in democracy, end quote. Now, it's interesting here because this is coming from the, de the, the Democrat president of the United States of America, who <laughs> in part uh, was swept into office by nationwide violence in our cities, political violence by Black Lives Matter and Antifa, which interestingly enough, seems to have all kind of dissolved now. Have you noticed that? The Antifa and Black Lives Matter nonsense seems like it's kind of just dried up. It's no longer a thing anymore now that Trump is out of office. You're one to talk. And what is this semi-fascism? It's like semi-fascism. It's like quasi sort of pseudo, you know, be ooga booga, very afraid uh, philosophy. What you're trying to do is you're trying to reframe. When you say these kinds of things, you're trying to reframe your opponent and cast them as the villain. And if that's what you want to do, Joe Biden, uh, it doesn't make filling up my vehicle any cheaper. It doesn't make my grocery bill any cheaper. It doesn't make my utility bill any cheaper. It doesn't mean that I'm all of a sudden going to be able to get a mortgage for a house. It doesn't mean that my wages are going to go up. You framing me and Americans like me across the country who think America was pretty great 
once upon a time and that you have made it, you and the Democrats have made it not so great anymore. (laughs) You making us into the villain here is not going to get our vote. So you've added insult to injury and it's time for you guys to get voted out. I hope you get absolutely destroyed in the midterms in 2024. I hope that your whole political party goes the way of the dinosaurs. And there you go. That's not political violence talking, but you do have a comeuppance. Do. You do, you do have a comeuppance do politically at the polls. And quite frankly, what we're going to get into next uh, is very, very concerning about the medium to long term of what Democrats have in view if they're not voted out nationwide, if they're not checked here in November or in the next two years, we should be very concerned about what sort of a dystopian uh, landscape we're going to be experiencing. If we think things are already a bit rough right now, just wait. It can get worse and it is liable to. California's Air Resources Board, CARB for short, announced this week that they are going to ban the sale of internal combustion engine vehicles by 2035, according to an article by William Johnson at teslarati.com. California's regulations are accepted in 14 other states and the District of Columbia and 17 state attorney generals are suing in federal court to block the move. Now, in case you're curious whether you live in one of the 14 states, which accept CARB standards. They are as follows. Connecticut, Colorado, Delaware, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey, New Mexico, New York, Oregon, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, Vermont, and Washington. This is to say that we should not just read this news as being one state out of 50 having decided something for itself. If you're thinking in terms of one out of 50 or 2% of uh, the country, that is just not the case. That That is not accurate. California is not just one of the wealthiest and most influential states in the union in the abstract. It's also one of the biggest economies in the world. And as I just mentioned, 28% of these United States look to its regulatory board to set their standards. 28% of these United States, and we're not even talking by weight of population, what that translates into. 28% is a huge swath of this country. 2035 is not that far away. And consider this, if you will. This move is coming as Ford just announced an $8,475 increase in the price of their 2023 electric Mustang compared with the 2022 model. And that immediately after the Biden administration announced an EV tax credit of $7,500 for deciding significant material cost increases. And I quote, significant material cost increases and quote, evolving market conditions, end quote. There's an article at the Daily Wire by Zach Jewell, which reports that materials such as cobalt, lithium, and nickel have become harder to get 
with China dominating cobalt and lithium production. That, coupled with supply chain issues, resulted in the cost of raw materials for EV production doubling from March 2020 to May 2022. Doubling. Take a number and add that number to itself. That's how much the costs have gone up for raw materials necessary for EV production. Double, double, double in two years. Besides that, though, objectively, this is not the proper function of government. It's not the proper role of government to make these decisions in principle and practically. In principle, the government should not be centrally planning and paternalistically declaring that individual consumers are not allowed to buy the most inexpensive and dependable vehicles available. Central planning of this exact kind by these people is why we are seeing inflation at levels not seen in over four decades. And it's also why the labor participation rate in the U.S. is so abysmally low. Don't look at the unemployment rate. Look at the labor participation rate. Also, look at shortages of so many goods and materials across the economy in the past two years where previously there was an abundance. The real question should not be in these circumstances, whether we want, like my little brother said in response to this news out of California, to have a clearer view of the mountains. That was literally what he had to say, was that if you looked at the mountains during COVID and the 15 days to slow the spread when the streets were totally clear, the air was so clean between here and the mountains, and it was beautiful, and wouldn't it be great if everybody were driving electric vehicles? Wouldn't that be great? Well, no, when you remember that the reason nobody was able to drive on the roads is because the government said you can't go to work unless you get this little permission slip saying we regard you as essential. You are the weakest link. Goodbye. Even if that literally means you can't pay your rent or your mortgage, you can't buy groceries, you can't pay your utilities, you can't send your kids to school, you can't go to church, you can't go to work. There's a lot of people who just went and killed themselves and climbed into bottles and overdosed on drugs over the past two years or got into domestic violence uh, incidents with their significant others or their children. There are a lot of reasons why that clear view of the mountains was not so beautiful when everybody had to stay home and get off the roads. And there's no magic wand to say, oh, yes, let's just everybody trade in your internal combustion engine vehicle for an EV right now. They're not available. It doesn't work like that. You can't take a country of 300 to 400 million people who have been driving internal combustion engine vehicles for their whole lives, most of them, and just say, oh, you're all going to have to buy electric vehicles now. You can't do that. That's not reasonable. That's not the way that it works. And we need to be asking the question, in principle, what the proper role of government is. Where is the line? If the line can be as ambiguous and arbitrary as I want a clear view of the mountains, then there is no line. There is no line. If I want a clearer view of the mountains is enough reason to destroy people's livelihood and their ability to live 
in modern society, if that's enough justification, well then, there is no line, and we are already in a communist hellscape. By any other name, the rose smells as sweet or as rotten as the case may be. I don't care what you call it. There is no line if a clear view of the mountains is a good reason to say nobody's allowed to buy anything but electric vehicles starting in 2035. And here's the thing. The people who think this is a great idea are the people who don't have to drive very far from where they live to where they work, to where they shop, to where they go to church, to where they go to school or where their kids go to school. The people who have leisure time to go ahead and plan out their route very carefully. What about the folks who live in rural areas? And is this potentially a push in the making to get people who live in the rural areas to move into the cities? That's an honest question. You know, what happens when you live in eastern Montana, for instance, and it's a four-hour, four-and-a-half-hour drive to Billings, and the infrastructure is not in place there yet, and all of a sudden you can't buy a internal combustion engine vehicle, even though there's all these gas stations, there's all this fossil fuel that you could be putting in your tank. Also, let's say you do it anyway. You buy an electric vehicle, and you're between Sydney, Montana and Billings, Montana, because you got to go there for doctoring. You got to go pick up a relative from the airport. You got to go make a run to Costco, what have you. You're on your way and you get about to Forsyth and all of a sudden you run out of electricity in your vehicle. You're not just saying, hey, can somebody take me up to the next gas station and fill up this little jerry can and we'll come back and I'll put enough gas in my tank to get to said gas station. No, 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 no. All of a sudden you're calling a tow truck. All of a sudden you've got a lot of very difficult problems, especially in remote parts of the country like that. But see, the Democrats don't think in terms of those folk. They detest those folk already as indicated by the quotes I just read for you. They hate flyover country. And I think in their heart of hearts, they would love if all these people either just went off into their own little world and whatever happens to them happens to them there. They're non-essential in our way of thinking anyways. They have hate in their hearts. Well, yes, they hate what you're doing to them. They hate what you're doing to their country. Yes, they, they have hate in their hearts for you mutilating little boys and little girls and putting parents who object to the same and object to being maligned as racists or their little Johnny and Susie being maligned as racist just for being white. Yes, they, they hate you putting them on terrorist watch lists because you showed up at a PTA meeting at a school board meeting, uh, upset at the way you were brainwashing their children to be little communists. Yeah, they hate that. But see, the Democrats think either A, that's a fringe minority or it really doesn't matter how many, because here's the thing, right? You can't have it both ways. Either A, you accept that there's a large portion of this country that is not for your radical wealth and power redistribution scheme, and they hate it, and they see it as contrary to the values that this country was founded on, the values that they've taught their children for generations, 
the values that are important and essential to their communities, either A, you say that's bad, Democrats say about conservatives, that's bad that you have the principles that you do, that you think about right and wrong and good and evil and true and false the way that you do. And it doesn't matter how many of you there are because bad is bad. Wrong is wrong, even if everybody's doing it. Right is right, even if nobody's doing it. Or, depending on how far you extend this whole counting noses nonsense, at a certain point you have to say, well, wait, what if it turns out that actually a majority of Americans are not for this radical wealth and power redistribution scheme? What if a majority of people still have it fresh in their minds that it was Democrats who locked down the country for years and caused irreparable damage to men, women, and children by destroying their livelihoods, destroying their retirement, destroying their small businesses, destroying their friendships, keeping them from being able to go to their, in my case, grandmother's funeral. My grandmother passed away in Florida and coming from Colorado, I didn't feel like I could fly down there to attend my own grandmother's funeral because of all of the COVID hysteria that Democrats conjured up. If electric vehicles are not practical for people living in flyover country, I think the Democrats are okay with any of several options. One being that the people in rural flyover country just buy used vehicles, used internal combustion engine vehicles. If that's what you need, go ahead and buy those. And when those stop working as well, well, by then, surely the technology will have developed sufficiently Unless it hasn't, unless China dominating the cobalt and lithium production and us potentially on a collision course with China over Taiwan means that you just flat can't get these vehicles built. We're going to phase out internal combustion engine vehicles. And then also, too, if in two years the cost of the raw materials has doubled and the people with the control over the supply of those materials happen to be threatening World War III against us over Taiwan. And Taiwan controls the semiconductor market, 90% of the world's semiconductor market. Let's think about this, right? Let's think about this. Is this a matter of us just being able to say, I want a clear view of the mountains? I got mine. I got mine. I got my electric vehicle. And I want a view of the mountains, a clear view of the mountains in my nice, quiet, high-efficiency, snazzy, stylish electric vehicle. Is it just a matter of that? Or do we need to be thinking a little bit longer term, a little bigger picture, a little more in terms of principle and the question of what is the proper role of government? You know, practically, a doubling of costs for raw materials needed for EV production in just two years should sober us here. How much more might these costs go up in the next dozen years or so? And what are the national security implications of China dominating global cobalt and lithium production? Right? Those are practical concerns. But in principle, what is the proper role of government? Is the proper role of government to have such a broad definition of pollution that literally anything you would buy, sell, trade, make, want, do, they can control If they say, well, you can't do that because that would cause pollution. You can't have that because that would cause pollution. You can't buy that. You can't sell that. You can't trade that. You can't own that. You can't use that. 
because it would cause pollution. If the definition of pollution is so broad that you can't even ask whether this is right on the auspices of combating global climate change, et cetera, et cetera, you can't even ask that question and talk about principles lest someone bring up factories 100 years ago dumping chemical waste, hazardous waste into rivers. Whether, you know, are you for that? Well, no, it's not the same thing, though. Right? I am for the government being against somebody slipping poison into my water. I'm for that. I am not for the government saying you can't own cows because they fart too much and that's causing global warming. I am not for the government saying you can't uh, have water for agriculture because we need to give more water to Native Americans because social justice, because critical theory because diversity, equity, and inclusivity. I am not for the government saying that it's pollution for me to own a 12-passenger vehicle. Now, because here's here's what it boils down to. I have eight kids. Now, somebody who's got one kid, like my little brother, and doesn't seem like he's in any hurry to have any more, somebody who's got one kid and he's happy and content might not be all that worried about buying an electric vehicle that's going to be cost-effective to be able to transport his family. I, on the other hand, am very concerned about the prospect of, you know, already, even if it's an internal combustion engine, 12 passenger, 15 passenger VN, you know, I, I'm, I'm looking at, uh, you know, the cost to trade in the vehicle I've got paid off, which is already at 130,000 miles. And I'm thinking, ah, oh, man, I don't know. I don't know if I should trade this vehicle in yet because inflation, because my wages are not going up, but the cost of everything else is. And you're telling me that that's that's not enough. That That's not enough to be concerned about. We need more government intervention, more government regulation. And specifically in this venue, I'm thinking personally, how then am I going to trade in my 12 passenger van, my family's 12 passenger van for a 12 or 15 passenger electric van. If the cost of the raw materials that go into EV production has doubled in just the past two years, I already can't afford the internal combustion engine model of the Ford transit. Now you're going to tell me I have to buy the electric vehicle option because climate change, the people making these decisions either don't have kids or they don't have very many, and I think they're very content. I I am not I am not convinced that they are above telling parents in this country, well, you should just stop having kids. You just shouldn't have had so many kids. It's on your own head, be it. You shouldn't have had so many kids. The party that is for Planned Parenthood and that has been attacking pregnancy centers and churches across the country since Roe v. Wade was overturned and since it was announced that it was going to be overturned the party that says even when they uh, claim to be you know good catholic christians that abortion is sacred ground holy ground and they celebrate and revere margaret sanger who said that the best thing a family a large family can do for one of its little ones is to kill them Back in the 1960s, she said that. she's the Actually, she's the architect of the sexual revolution to a very great extent. 
and of course legalization of contraceptives and birth control the erosion of marriage the loosening of our sexual mores this whole transgender moment we're in right now is her grandchild ideologically and i think to myself if china controls ev production by controlling access to the raw materials that go into EV production. And then Democrats here in the US, in the People's Republic of California, say you will not be allowed in the next dozen years to buy an internal combustion engine vehicle. And oh, by the way, Colorado follows our standards and you live in Colorado, so therefore you can't buy one in Colorado, even though it was California that made the decision. Their regulatory board, their Soviet committee, made the decision. I am not convinced that the same people making this decision about EVs wouldn't also say for the sake of saving the planet, since you've accepted that premise, we're going to say you can only have this many children because that's what China did. And how's that working out for them? But again, though, this is, this is two questions. One is the practical question of you shall reap what you sow. And then there's also the principled question, is it proper, is it right for the government to say you cannot buy this, you cannot sell this, you cannot trade this, you cannot own this, you cannot use this? And at what point does it really just boil down to we own you? We assume total control over you. Moving on. Let's talk about gatekeeping with a little help from Oxford Languages, which is the Oxford Dictionary redefining itself playing games with even just what we call it. Gatekeeping, noun, the activity of controlling and usually limiting general access to something. Quote, Walmart's cultural gatekeeping has served to narrow the mainstream for entertainment offerings, end quote. With computing, specifically, this is a second definition, a function or system that controls access or operations to files, computers, networks, or the like. Quote, a gatekeeping mechanism that allows reads under some circumstances and blocks them under others, end quote. Now let's flesh out what gatekeeping is by taking a gander at Wikipedia. Gatekeeping is the process through which information is filtered for dissemination, whether for publication, broadcasting, the internet, or some other mode of communication. The academic theory of gatekeeping may be found in multiple fields of study, including communication studies, journalism, political science, and sociology. Gatekeeping originally focused on the mass media with its few-to-many dynamic. Currently, the gatekeeping theory also addresses face-to-face communication and the many-to-many dynamic inherent on the internet. Social psychologist Kurt Lewin first instituted gatekeeping theory in 1943. Gatekeeping occurs at all levels of the media structure, from a reporter deciding which sources are presented in a headline story to editors, choosing which stories are printed or covered, including but not limited to media outlet owners and advertisers. Gatekeeping. Some questions come to my mind about all this after a recent conversation I had this week. Initially, I was talking with someone in my family about California's decision to ban all internal combustion engine vehicles by 2035. But as uh, our previous segment made clear, soon enough, if you're talking with me about this, I'm going to bring up the creeping specter of communism and our government acting as though it ostensibly owns the means of production and which is by the way a marxist idea you as the government think you own you you think you own the means of production therefore must centrally plan every aspect of 
our economy on the macro. Well, that then translates into you necessarily limiting all of our choices in the micro. If I can't get it on the shelf because it's not there, well, then you didn't just control it on the macro. You controlled it at the micro level as well, didn't you? But now I have some questions from that conversation. One, is it gatekeeping in a discussion of political, social, or theological issues to recommend someone reads this or that book? True or false? (laughs) True or false? (laughs) Is it gatekeeping to reference books that have informed and shaped your own opinions and positions? True or false? Could it not be just as much gatekeeping if you say true to those previous for someone to dismiss out of hand positions arrived at by reading books of history and philosophy? Could it not be just as much gatekeeping for someone to insist only personal experience or an official title qualifies someone for having an informed opinion or what passes for an informed opinion? Are these also not kinds of gatekeeping similar to what was alleged by someone I was talking with this week? And to be clear, not to beat around the bush, I was accused of gatekeeping (laughs) by always telling people that you should read this book. Hey, I read this really great book the other day, or I read this book several years ago, which shaped my thinking on this thing. And you should read this book if you want to know more. And, you know, it really, it, it, it took me by total surprise that this was what was said. I, it was the furthest thing from my mind that that is one, what I'm doing, or two, how what I'm doing would be perceived. Because to my way of thinking, what I'm doing in recommending books is the exact opposite of gatekeeping. Uh, I'm basically saying, here, like the gate is open. I'll prop it open and you walk through. So I think that's more what it is personally. But what do you think? Is that gatekeeping in a conversation, in a casual conversation where you turn to politics and social issues and theology, if all of a sudden you're like, oh, well, I read this and I read that and I read this and I read that, and you should read Polybius and you should read de Tocqueville and you should read Edmund Burke and you should read Victor Davis Hanson and you should read Charles C. Mann. If I start referencing all these books I've read, even just to say, hey, these informed my opinion, I'm not trying to flex on you. Just to be very clear, I'm not trying to dunk on you. I'm not trying to say, well, therefore, you can't have an informed opinion about these things if you haven't read these books. I'm not trying to say that. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to encourage other people to read books and not get their opinions straight from the tap from the mainstream from from the mainstream media. I, you know, the the idea that gatekeeping is a thing that doesn't necessarily bother me. I think the devil's in the details. Who's keeping the gate and how and why? Right. That that's what I want to know. But I've been an editor. I am uh, still, I guess, on paper, chief editor for On The Rock's blog, even though nobody has written there for several years now, a couple of years now. Uh, I have focused my attentions on podcasting. Micah Hirschberger, my cousin, who also wrote over there, uh, was the other principal writer, has been working on novels. We had some other miscellaneous people here and there who wrote one-offs for us. 
you know, but being the chief editor, I could say, no, we're not going to run with this. No, I think this needs to be rewritten. And ideally, when gatekeeping is done well, you're keeping the bad guys out, right? Like think of that scene from Monty Python and the Holy Grail where there's the wedding and Lancelot is running from a far way off across a meadow and these two guards are supposed to be gatekeeping during the wedding and they're just standing there and they're watching and they're not moving a muscle and they're watching him run and they're watching him run and they're watching him run and then all of a sudden he's there and one of them takes his sword to the neck and crumples down dead and the other one just tamely says hey as he runs by into the wedding and starts you know stabbing and slashing everybody in the wedding party and why because lancelot received a message that he thought was from some beautiful princess who needed to be rescued from her cruel tyrannical father and it turns out that it's this effeminate prince and all the while it's just you know it's very funny it's very funny but he's just you know killing everybody indiscriminately and it's totally out of control and it's totally ridiculous and it's totally absurd and uh and and it has a limitation right it's it's funny on one level it's also uh, a cruel jest it's a cynical jest uh, about chivalry you know very much along the lines of don quixote it's a quixotic uh you know mockery of chivalry chivalry was I think a noble thing. And then once it fell out of fashion, uh, it became fashionable to mock it as much as it had been honored before. But gatekeeping is what the two guards in that skit are supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be keeping somebody like Lancelot out so he doesn't come in and start murdering all the guests. And so then the question is, it's like, okay, if you have a gatekeeper who's not filtering out things that are not true, things that are not good, that are not sound, that are not reasonable, that's all right. Now, here's a question for you. Do you know what the largest organ in your body is? And it's a little bit of a trick question, I guess. It's your skin. In some sense, the largest organ in your body is actually the organ that's all around your body, your skin. Your skin is supposed to be a semi, se- semi-permeable layer of tissue that protects more vulnerable, more delicate, sensitive parts of your body from exposure and infection and damage. And so what happens when somebody is a burn victim? They get burns, bad burns all over their body. They typically die due to infection because that skin is not keeping things out that need to be kept out that will make you very sick. It's not keeping things in that need to be kept in. It's not keeping things out that need to be kept out. So gatekeeping is an important role and an important function. But if you have somebody keeping the gate who is treacherous, who is treasonous, who is corrupt, who takes bribes, who hates the city, which he keeps the gate of, then he will keep the messenger's warning of a coming army from getting into the city with a message that would rouse everyone for action and preparing. The gatekeeper will also very happily allow in spies and saboteurs and assassins. But a good gatekeeper is going to say, 
I recognize when a messenger is bringing tidings we need to heed. And on the other hand, a good gatekeeper is going to recognize, is going to be able to know how to spot. And somebody seems like, you know, I I think I saw you on a wanted poster. I think I saw that you were a suspect in the assassination of the king of the neighboring realm. And when that's the kind of gatekeeping you're doing, by quoting books, by referencing books, by encouraging others to read books, that's a good kind of gatekeeping. What we have with our mainstream media is not a good kind of gatekeeping because the leftist agenda pervades everything. What information, what details they do include and emphasize through repetition in very manipulative, dishonest ways, and also what details they keep out that would be a warning for us. The whole reason we have this mainstream media is because we're supposed to be informed when we go to the polls, when we make voting decisions, when we make personal life decisions and business decisions and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We're supposed to be making these decisions based on good information. If the people giving us the information actually just want to control us and defraud us and take us for a ride, take advantage of us, well then maybe we need to start looking you know, not at what's the most convenient, what's the easiest. A piece of cheese on a mousetrap is very convenient until the mouse tries to take the cheese. And then you find out it was about as far from convenient as possible as something could be when the trap snaps. When you don't recognize that there's a hook in the bait and you bite, then you become the meal. That worm you thought you were just about to enjoy little fishy, ends up actually being the end of you, unless you can break the line. And you're going to be tired after that, even if you do it. If you don't end up in the boat, in somebody's cooler. So what we have here, I think, with this discussion, just in closing, is actually a question of who do we recognize as being friend and foe? And do we recognize rightly who our friends are and who our foes are? Who you know, again, going back to Charlie Crist's comments, who is good and who is evil and isn't good and evil all about loving the right things and hating the wrong things, hating the things that are evil, loving what is good. Well, if you don't know what is good and you don't know what is evil, good and evil are just categories that are totally utilitarian and pragmatic, but you don't even get the pragmatic benefit really in the long run because the people who are telling you what's practical and pragmatic are amoral, Machiavellian. The best thing for you would be to go and read history and gain perspective so that you're able to start spotting when somebody is trying to sneak into the city and they're actually an assassin or a saboteur or a spy. Read history and you start to gain perspective. And it doesn't mean you know everything. I, I've read a lot of history. I don't know everything. I don't. But I know a lot more than I would have if I hadn't read these books. I know that. I know a lot more having read these books. And I know that there's a lot of people who spend a lot of their free time amusing themselves to death, to Neil Postman's point. But it's a bait. It's, it's a, a baited trap. It's a baited hook that you're being lulled into a false sense of 
security. Not to say that there's no place for entertainment, no place for watching a movie or a TV show that makes you laugh. I just played a clip from The Office. I, I think when you turn off your brain and you're passive about it and you don't realize what you're being told and what you're being sold, I think that's dangerous. But I'll give you a couple of quotes. A couple of quotes, and then we'll leave it at that for this episode because I got to run. It's a Sunday morning after all. From Polybius, at the risk of being accused of gatekeeping still further or flexing on you or dunking on you, I'm going to quote Polybius, ancient Greek historian living in Rome, cataloging the fall of the Greeks and the rise of Rome, how that happened, what happened. He writes, there are two roads to reformation for mankind, one through misfortunes of their own, the other through those of others. The former is the most unmistakable, the latter the less painful. One should never, therefore, voluntarily choose the former, for it makes reformation a matter of great difficulty and danger. But we should always look out for the latter, for thereby we can, without hurt to ourselves, gain a clear view of the best course to pursue. And I quote, In other words, if someone says, They only trust opinions and positions that are arrived at from personal experience. I will say you're going to have to personally experience all of the repercussions of your bad decisions before you're willing to listen to me when I tell you I've read the history of the Greeks and the Romans and the Holy Roman Empire and of the British Isles and of America. And here's what I've learned. You won't listen until you've suffered the consequences. And that's dangerous. That's the most unmistakable. That's the, <laughs> that is definitely the surest way to find out, in fact, whether you've made the wrong choice by making it and suffering the misfortunes. Or another option is learn from other people's mistakes. That's really what this Polybius quote boils down to. Two ways to learn. Learn from your own mistakes. Learn from other people's mistakes. You learn from your own mistakes And you will know those mistakes and the learning from them clearer. You know exactly what you did to make that mistake. You know exactly what was going through your head. You know exactly why it seemed like a good idea at the time. But also, on the downside, you're now suffering the consequences. And depending on what those consequences are, it might be too late to go back and to fix the mistake. On the other hand, if others' mistakes can be studied. Maybe there's questions. Maybe there's ambiguities. Maybe there's things you just don't know. Details you don't have about all of what went into that. But if you can learn from their mistakes without having to repeat those mistakes, that's where wisdom is found. One more quote from Polybius. I promise just one more for now. In the natural spontaneous course of events, the first political system to arise is monarchy, and this is followed by kingship. But it takes the deliberate correction of the defects of monarchy for it to develop into kingship. Kingship changes into its congenital vice, that is, into tyranny, and then it is the turn of aristocracy. After the dissolution of tyranny, aristocracy necessarily degenerates into oligarchy, and when the general populace gets impassioned enough to seek redress for the crimes committed by their leaders, democracy is born. And in due course of time, 
once democracy turns to violating and breaking the law, mob rule arises and completes the series. So this is in part describing the course of civilization. Hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. Weak men create hard times. And so on and so forth. That's what Polybius is talking about after a fashion. But he's talking about types of government. And what type of government do you have when Democrats are saying the things that they're saying about Republicans in their states and doing the kinds of things that they're doing with regards to whether you should be free to buy an internal combustion engine vehicle if you want to, if you think that's what's best, if that's what's most economical for you and your family. We should pay attention to what form of government we are being asked to submit to and accept ours changing into gradually more and more and more over time. Nobody flips a switch and then these things all of a sudden change over. These are gradually the accumulation of lots of little choices over time, and they need to be recognized as such and thought of as such and responded to as such. But as I said, that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. been listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.